Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today, Tom Kellerman. Hi, Tom. Hello, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Doing well. Tom is the head of cybersecurity strategy for VMware Security Business Unit and serves as a board member on the US Cyber Investigations Advisory Board. While his dream job is to be a stand-up comedian, he spent his entire career in the security industry. His recent research focuses on fraud and trends in the financial sector, as well as nation-state motives and APT groups. In 2008, he joined the Obama administration's Cybersecurity Commission, where he worked on financial crime investigations and the Secret Service. So, Tom, tell me about your background in cybersecurity. Well, I've been in the business for 22 years. I'm a reformed hacker. I had a college professor at the University of Michigan uh, make me see the light and find a way. My first job was at the World Bank and IMF Treasury Security Team. And then I was a member of uh, Core Security, which is the company that created the first automated penetration testing capability where we would train red teams around the world and how to break into their own systems. Then I was the CSO of Trend Micro. After that, I was the CEO of a venture capital fund that was focused on cyber investments, specifically investments in the intelligence community capabilities of both the U.S. and Israel. And then now I'm, I'm over at uh, VMware and VMware Carbon Black specifically. Carbon Black is the security division of VMware. Excellent. Well, there's a lot to unpack there and, and a lot of uh, rich information I'm sure you've gathered over, over time. You know, the, the part I want to start with is your time spent with the, the U.S. Cyber Investigations Advisory Board. And in particular, you had a very interesting story when we last spoke around the Secret Service and your involvement there. So can you share a little bit about that piece? Yeah, I think it's important for folks to understand the Secret Service has two missions. Uh, what you see on TV is really the protection mission, uh, but their primary mission is actually financial crime investigations. Uh, Secret Service was stood up during the civil, right after the Civil War uh, in the Treasury Department to investigate counterfeit currency. So anytime you read about you know North Korean money laundering um, or ransomware attacks or this bank got hit by the Russian cybercrime cartels, the people who are actually investigating those things are Secret Service special agents, not actually the FBI. So that's really interesting. You know, from what I see on TV, on the news and, and movies, I would not have thought that the Secret Service was involved in any way so, sort of fashion from financial uh, crimes. So if you were a victim of, let's say, some sort of a scam where someone managed to get you to transfer money or wire money to them internationally, it's a Secret Service that would be involved in investigating that? Not necessarily on an individual level. So if a, a financial institution or a major retailer was hacked, that's where the Secret Service would get involved. Uh, when it's at, on an individual basis, if your losses are less than a million dollars, honestly, um, you basically file that complaint to the Internet Crime and Complaint Center, the IC3, and you may or may not actually get a real response. But the, the fact of the matter is that law enforcement is overwhelmed with caseload right now, which is why they have to put a minimum threshold on losses associated with a cyber crime uh, to investigate. 
There's just not enough special agents out there to investigate the 600% increase uh, in cyber intrusions this year. So based on your experience, what would be the one specific piece of advice you would give everyone from being a victim or preventing them from becoming a victim of financial fraud? Well, you know, there's, I'll give you five pieces of advice here. Number one, anytime someone's requesting information from you of any sensitivity, double check the headers, uh, the reply to, and the return path. If it's not the same thing, uh, you're dealing with an imposter. Number two, update your critical applications and your operating systems every Tuesday night. That's when Silicon Valley puts, pushes out the, the steel plates or critical updates. And number three, no matter what kind of device you have, including iOS devices and Apple devices, you need next generation antivirus or EPP platform on it to secure it. Number four, you need to use two-factor authentication, multi-factor authentication at all times. And then number five, you know, frankly, if you've been compromised, if you do see a persistent presence on your device, let's say a virus is detected or a Trojan is detected, understand that all of your passwords have been compromised. So you have to change all of them, which will require you to go into every account that you have. And obviously don't make those the same password, but use sentences and phrases versus just words or numbers. That's great advice. So leading into the financial fraud and other things you're seeing in the financial industry in particular, you recently published some research called Modern Bank Heist 4.0. And, uh, you know, I had the pleasure of reading it. Thank you so much for sending it to me. But can you share with us from your perspective, what are some of the most interesting findings from this report? Yeah, this is this is my pet project per se. You know, one of my first jobs was being the CISO for the World Bank and IMF in DC and financial sector security is a very difficult art form. Um, and as much as the financial institutions of the world have the best security in the world, they're being targeted by nation states and the most advanced cybercrime cartels in the world. Uh, so that being said, um, this is the fourth year I've produced this report. I interviewed 126 uh, CISOs from our financial institutions around the world. And um, there are a number of findings that are quite problematic. There's been a 57% increase in wire transfer fraud. The, the majority of them realized that the most advanced adversaries weren't actually targeting uh, the wire transfer systems themselves, actually. They were looking at targeting um, you know, non-public market information or market strategies of the financial institution, let's say going after, let's say, portfolio manager uh, endpoints or going after someone who's dealing with Forex or you know, currency exchanges uh, endpoints and purposely trying to essentially digitally front run or digitally insider trade on that non-public market information. And then there was a 118% increase of destructive attacks where the adversaries were dropping ransomware in systems, but not asking for ransom, dropping wipers in systems to cripple those devices, and or manually deleting logs or manipulating the value of time uh, to disrupt the operations of the institution. That is quite interesting. And then what led you to start publishing or taking on this project in the beginning? How did it get started? It got started because, you know, the DNA of Carbon Black is really this construct of the original EDR and, and cyber threat hunting. And as we've now joined VMware and become their security division, uh, it's an imperative for us to understand how offense can inform defense, right? So the one community out there that is performing cybersecurity in the best fashion is the financial sector. So understanding their challenges and the trends of attack against them, you can extrapolate quite a bit. And that can inform your design principles for the product um, and capabilities that we build here on out. And, and so it was, it was important to, to really get a pulse of, you know, during a pandemic, as all these institutions were forced to adopt some sort of cloud compute and modern applications and remote work, that obviously increased the attack surface and how were adversaries taking advantage of that? I think there's a lot of focus, in particular in the financial service area, around defensive techniques and taking defensive measures. How important do you think also having the complementary offensive security techniques and having a practice around that is, especially within the financial service space? 
I think the real distinction here is prevention versus detection and response. Uh, obviously, um, detection response can come in many forms, but frankly, you're never going to be right 100% of the time. You're never going to prevent an adversary from penetrating your environment or attacking successfully attacking your supply chain. I mean, to that note, 38% of these institutions suffered island hopping and supply chain attacks, and that was outside, excluding solar winds. Um, so the name of the game has changed. Success now is preventing an adversary from moving freely within your environment for long periods of times, such that they then can take over the, your environment and use it to attack your constituency or what's called an island hop. That's the name of the game. And how do you decrease that dwell time? It's really all about what's called intrusion suppression. So think of what zero trust actually does. It provides zero trust, sure, but when an adversary has undermined your prevention and detection response, how do you detect them, divert them, deceive them, contain them, and then hunt them unbeknownst to them? Because you don't want to be as loud as we have been in the past with incident response or even cyber threat hunting due to the nature in which cyberspace become more punitive. And because of this dramatic increase of destructive attacks, it's almost like if someone breaks into your house, you, we used to basically turn on the lights, grab the gun, call the cops and scream out, I know you're in the house, I've called the cops and I have a gun. That's not necessarily in your best interest. You're making an assumption that there's one adversary, not a crew in your home. You're making an assumption that they're merely trying to burglarize you, not actually terrorize you or take over your home through a home invasion. And you're making an assumption that they're not willing to, now that they know that you're awake, to burn the house down with you in it. And that's essentially what is happening as we see attacks escalate in the sector, which is why the report really calls out that the, the heist has become a hostage situation. So let's talk about the concept of island hopping. Can you elaborate how it relates in particular from a solar winds breach perspective? And more importantly, I would also like to understand your perspective for other software companies out there that are saying, hey, how do I ensure that I don't become the next solar winds or my software doesn't become the next solar winds? Uh, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, solar winds was a wake up call. Uh, obviously, it was a nation state campaign that required hundreds of cybersecurity experts or Cyber, cyber criminals and cyber spies to create the myriad of malicious codes that were used to attack their constituency. But essentially, they, they compromised the trust aspects of the science certificate associated with the update for SolarWinds software to get their initial foothold. And then they moved laterally in a very elegant fashion from everything from you know manipulating timestamps to uh, using steganography to deploy secondary command and control on a sleep cycle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here at VMware, vulnerability management and, and rugged coding and and the security of the fabric of VMware is our absolute number one priority. It has been now for about over a year, and we're becoming much more effective at detecting responding to presumptive attacks because of the nature of the Carbon Black's detection response capabilities have been integrated into vSphere, Horizon, and Workspace One. And that allows us to understand attacks when they already bypass the perimeter and be able to respond to them in real time and engage uh, the adversary within our own infrastructure. But look, island hopping, number one, you need to have the conversation with your board and your CEO. That It's not about whether your crown jewels are gonna be compromised. It's a question of whether your infrastructure will be commandeered to attack your constituency. And that's what you're trying to prevent against. So to, to, to really accomplish uh, an effective defensive posture and countermeasures in this regard, you need to do a couple of things. Uh, one is you need to conduct regular weekly cyber threat hunts in your environment, trying to identify behavioral anomalies before they manifest. Number two is you should conduct a penetration test from inside out to understand the attack paths that an adversary would leverage through your infrastructure to attack your constituency or your partners or, 
or even uh, government agencies who you support. Number three, you need to pursue the premise of rugged coding. And you need to truly test all code in production for, for exploitation. Um, OWASP is a critical underpinning of this and OWASP uh, testing is fundamental. And never ever release code um, unless you've actually tested it for exploitation prior to going live. Um, and then also engage. Um, it's in today's world, we're dealing with four nation states that are actively pursuing and targeting corporations, including software vendors. Uh, I think information sharing uh, with government agencies is fundamental because it's a bi-directional flow. The work that CISA has done and the work that they continue to do and the work that the Secret Service and FBI do to engage and provide you with a heads up is an imperative to understand when you're dealing with a supply chain challenge where nation states are trying to colonize the environment. And then would you add anything else from an insider threat perspective as well for these organizations? Because a lot of these breaches happen because there is a compromised insider. How would you address that? Yeah, this, this goes back to you need to have uh, detection response capabilities. You need to have behavioral anomaly detection on all endpoints. Behavioral anomaly detection is exactly what it looks like, okay? Even with an insider or whether it's a digital insider, someone who has compromised the credentials of a legitimate insider or someone who has compromised the endpoint of a legitimate insider. Number two is you have to integrate your network detection response capabilities with your endpoint protection and prevention and protection capabilities. It's, it's fundamental. Um, you need to have those things seamlessly integrated and then overlay SOAR uh, on top of that and then regularly conduct those cyber threat hunts and understand who is acting anomalously and more importantly, if there is a virtual persistent presence on a device or on an account uh, that's been leveraged by one of these cyber crime cartels. Oh, one last point on that. Uh, Just-in-time administration should be the norm. We need to appreciate that no administrator should have administrative rights in perpetuity, as adversaries will always attempt to, to leverage local exploits to escalate privileges on non-administrative accounts, but also they will purposely target sysadmins across the board, knowing full well that they have the keys to the castle. True. Very true. So let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk a little bit more around the pandemic and how the, the there was such a sudden shift in the the way people worked and in particular the remote working, working from home. And you kind of alluded to this earlier in your answer where there is the cloud and, and our ability to adopt the cloud has what is one of the key reasons which has allowed us to go into a remote workforce, workforce so quickly. Do you think there's maybe an over-reliance on the public cloud from that perspective? And if there is, what are some of the security concerns that maybe come with it? So when you think of public cloud, you have to think of you've just moved into a condominium complex in a very tough part of town. And not all public clouds are equal in terms of how they secure that building or how they work with the police in that neighborhood, nor how they protect you and access to your floor or access to your unit. Uh, and you're really truly gonna to have to be responsible for the security of your own apartment, as well as being conscious and aware of what your neighbors are up to, um, if they're acting maliciously or they're putting you in danger. Uh, I think a lot of times people forget that. If you are a smaller organization and you don't have a real security team or a SOC, yes, the public cloud can enhance actually your security posture because you do have this overlay. But if you're a medium size or a large corporation, I think the best path to pursue is that of hybrid cloud. It allows you more greater capability to secure yourself against various attacks. And if you think of the public cloud, if you think of a robust attack against your environment, the public cloud, systemic events can happen. But more importantly, you don't have true visibility to limit to your capacity to defend yourself truly in that environment. Um, so hybrid, hybrid cloud is definitely the best way to go. But many people are not, not leveraging workload security in those environments. And they really need to, to turn that on and ensure that they're doing that as well as enhance the security of their endpoints. 
That's fair. So in terms of the hybrid cloud, when have you seen it done very well or very effectively? And can you share with us what were some things that they factored in into moving to a hybrid cloud model? Yeah, um, I've seen it very well done in a number of Fortune 100 companies, as well as some of the financial sector entities, particularly entities in, in Europe and in Singapore that have done it quite effectively. Those who have pursued um, the models espoused by NIST or the NSA for best practices as it relates to cloud security have been the most successful. And those who have truly mobilized and turned on uh, workload security and workload protection had a better chance of stopping many of the attacks of today. Going forward, though, I think there's a giant challenge in front of us as many folks are over-relying on Kubernetes to manage and protect, uh, per se, containers and instances of containers. And it's fundamental that they embrace uh, new forms of container security because hackers are really beginning to push the envelope now on what can be done with container stuffing, container attacks, and the misuse of Kubernetes to leverage payloads. That's good to know. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about your time with the Obama administration. Can you share with us maybe some of the policies under the Obama administration or even under the Biden administration that you were happy to see implemented? Yeah, let, let's give you a little perspective. The Commission on Cybersecurity for the 44th president was stood up by Congress before President Obama became president. And we were briefing the national security teams of McCain, Clinton, and Obama for about eight months prior to Obama becoming president, and then we advised him. It consisted of about 10 private sector luminaries, as well as uh, eight government ex-officios who are people of high-ranking significant officials within government agencies that are responsible for cybersecurity. The Obama administration was very much focused on expanding access and improving the state of technological adoption in the U.S. and embracing new technologies for the purposes of economic growth. Uh, there was a lot of concern when it was obvious that Chinese and Russians had leveraged successful campaigns of attack against United States corporations about not reacting in a very uh, <laughs> significant fashion because they were concerned about escalation. And because we were the most digitally dependent large nation in the world, they were concerned about escalation with an adversary. The recommendations of the commission, uh, many of which have finally been implemented over the past three or four months, because many of which were part of the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, in fact. I'm very pleased and heartened to see the dream team of cybersecurity professionals that are now working with President Obama to civilize and secure American cyberspace. I was incredibly proud and happy to hear of the, the sanctions due to solar winds, but I do think that there needs to be a proportionate cyber response to disrupt and dismantle the, the infrastructure associated with our adversaries as well. Things are going to get very interesting. Things are going to get become much more interesting as, as soft power now is not just economic power, soft power is cyber power. And it is being leveraged uh, by a handful of nation states. But what's most problematic right now is that uh, North Korea and Iran have A-teams now. They literally have significant cyber capabilities, thanks to their benevolent big brother, who has been providing them technology transfer, uh, and, as well as, you know, obviously military technology transfer as well. And we know who that is. Well, you know, I sometimes like to take a step back and, and think of things at a global scale. And you brought up all these other countries as well. I'm curious if you have any advice for some of the more developing countries or, you know, the countries that are now starting to implement and adopt a lot of technology, the internet and, and having access to especially the mobile data network so that they're, they're getting access from an internet connectivity perspective across 
the board much faster than they did, let's say, historically, when the mobile network wasn't able to support high-speed internet. Any advice you have for those governments who haven't necessarily even thought about cybersecurity on where to start or where to go to learn more about some of the best practices and how to get started to build the foundations of protecting your cyberspace? So those governments should immediately impose strict cybersecurity standards associated with best practices, like again, from NIST or NSA or CIS upon um, the critical infrastructures within their countries. Those countries should immediately engage the US or the Europeans or, or Asian allies in, in training and mobilizing cyber capacity within their law enforcement community. Those countries must immediately begin to modernize forfeiture and any money laundering laws so that they can forfeit the virtual currencies associated with cyber crime conspiracies and use those to fund critical infrastructure protection. Those countries should double check <laughs> or verify that they have signed the Budapest Convention on Cyber Crime, where dozens of countries are members. Those countries should take advantage of the assistance treaties from the U.S. government, uh, Secret Service, and FBI in terms of helping them go after cyber crime cartels of organized nature and their nation state boundaries. And those countries, I think it would behoove them, and we haven't done this in the U.S. yet, to associate you know, next generation identity and authentication for each individual, much like each individual might have a identity card or a passport. They need to have a digital identity and or virtual passport that should be associated with that individual that can be protected in a central repository governed by that regime. Any idea on when we'll have that in the U.S.? A timeline or, or guesstimate? I think the irony, uh, well, not the irony, I think the pandemic is forced functioning a lot of these things. When the U.S. government's going to, when governments around the world are going to require that you have COVID vaccination <laughs> attestation on your mobile device prior to entering the country, I think that's when that's going to happen. And that's why there's such debate. But I would like to remind everyone that everyone's always concerned about Big Brother. Uh, there's not one Big Brother. And Big Brother, there's dozens of countries who not only have that capability, uh, or countries that have even hacked our own capabilities and use our own you know, surveillance technologies to surveil us. But you also have you know, a myriad of cyber crime cartels who have such advanced capabilities, they can get into any infrastructure. And now that you've seen this convergence of OT and IoT, these groups are more than willing to, to make a real world phenomenon for all of us. And so it's really about, you know, the ethos of the big brother. <laughs> and to that, I'd like to speak to one thing here. Everyone is rushing to adopt AI or build their own AI and, and, and move forward with AI technology. And you have to remember that AI has two Achilles heels. One is its dependence on time. Obviously, if you can manipulate the time associated with the AI, then it will fail in its mission. Uh, and two is uh, what kind of inputs? I mean, could you and can you corrupt the integrity of the inputs to thus corrupt the AI, thus turning it on its own mission? I, I like that fact. I have a couple of follow-up questions actually around that. So let's say we are required to have a virtual vaccine passport or something of that nature. How big of a hurdle is it to get all the countries to agree on a standardized solution and getting them to adopt it? Because ultimately, the, the vaccine passport is going to also be part of your travel requirements, I'm assuming, at least in the short term. How big of a hurdle is that? And is that even realistic? I think it'll begin with regional approaches. Let's just say like in Asia, it'll be the Quad plus Singapore and Korea who, who create a version of that. Uh, in Europe, it's obviously the EU, and then they'll add the UK. For, I think there's going to be one for Mexico, the US, and Canada, for sure, particularly because of the amount of trade that occurs there. But in the end, there's only two entities in the world that can pull it off in, in a truly systemic and global fashion, one of which is the United Nations, and the other one is the ITU. True, very true. 
All right. So one thing I love to do on this podcast is talk about people's personal things that they're willing to share as well. And I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball because you said you're an aspiring comedian. I would love to hear one of your most popular or go-to jokes that you like telling people. Well, I can't get into all of it right here, but I can tell you I'm going to do a stand-up act soon at the Comedy Cellar here in Denver called The Five Red Flags which are the five things that I overlooked in my last fiance, which were quite notable, quite embarrassing. But I'll leave you with one of them uh, right here. When you're dating someone for over a month and it's your birthday and then they give you a present and you open it and there's two wine glasses in it, uh, which are monographed, and now their name is now your name, you've got a problem. Or when you come back from a business trip, you've been dating for two months, and they're like, what happens if you die on the road? And then they, and you say, hey, why are we talking about my death here? And then they say, oh, well, I think I should be put on your life insurance policy in case you die. You got another problem, don't you? That's a definite red flag, I would say. <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Oh, man. Awesome. Well, I look forward to it. I, I mean, are you, are you planning on publishing that stand-up event that you're doing or, or anything like that? Oh, all I got to say is um, the trials and tribulations of being single in this world are funny. Mm -hmm. They sure are. Tom, last question for you. When we spoke last time, you mentioned that you really love skiing in Colorado. Can you share with us maybe some of your favorite spots and, and why they are your favorite spots? Also, if you happen to know a spot that's underrated, but and, and, and you know, and it's a, it's a nice little secret gem that no one knows about. You know, my, one of my favorite spots is Beaver Creek because it's outside of Vail. It's not as hectic as Vail. Um, it's more laid back. Uh, there's less people on the slopes. Uh, it's really a relaxing, amazing experience. Yeah, I think there's a, a little best kept secret. During the week in Colorado, if you fly into Denver, you don't need to go all the way out to Vail. You can just go up to a place outside of Boulder called Eldora. And if you do during the week, there's really no one up there. Um, it's, it's a challenging course in the sense that, you know, some parts are really windy and some parts can get icy just because of the nature of the terrain facing north. But it's easy. It's a 40 minute drive and all of a sudden you're up there skiing and you can do it in a day. Everyone preaches, and I haven't been there yet, about Telluride um, being the gospel uh, and the Mecca uh, for true skiing. And I haven't been there yet, but there are flights that connect through Denver. That's awesome. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time and, and, and sharing all your thoughts and insights on all these topics and your ex-fiance. You know, it's, uh, it's been truly a pleasure and I hope to get to hang out with you in person soon as we come to the end of this pandemic and hopefully we can share some more jokes and stories at the same time. I would enjoy that. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks, Tom. Take care. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.